California is quarantined, insider trading in Congress, and we have special guest Robert Columbus. This is the Matt and Chan Show. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We will make America great again. This is the Matt and Chan Show. All right, folks, welcome back to the Matt and Chan Show, the defenders of the truth. How are you doing today, Chan? I'm doing great. How are you, Matt? I'm doing awesome. This is the first time me and Chan are actually not in the same room together. He's actually on a phone call today. Yeah, this is part of the uh, the social distancing and self-quarantine effort uh, related to the coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, and yeah, sort of, we'll get into it more with the show, but uh, the whole state of California has received orders to shelter in place until further notice. So here we are uh, in even separate cities uh, talking. I, I'm here in uh Hanford, California, you're still in Fresno, so yeah, uh, but it's, as always, it's great to be talking with you. Another great day being able to talk politics. I know not in the same room, that kind of sucks. I know it's good that you are following following quarantine measures right now, as well as everybody here in California for the most part, which is pretty interesting since most people are actually staying home. Yeah, there's been an incredible compliance with this uh, Not perfect, but certainly more than I expected. Uh, But yeah, we just want to thank uh, all the listeners who are tuned in today uh, during this very unique time. Uh, If it's your first time listening, please uh, give us a subscribe and uh, leave a five-star review on iTunes if you like what you hear. Uh, But yeah, we we sort of want to provide a little bit of a sense of community for you if you are uh, listening in and you're uh, stuck at home due to the, the... quarantine effort exactly i know a lot of people are sitting at home not knowing what to do you could tune into the matt and chan show and check out what's going on and hearing a different take on what's going on besides what the media is telling everybody exactly so uh, why don't we jump into the uh the california quarantine that gavin newsom ordered yeah he just ordered it i think it was last night Pretty much until further notice, all Californians are not supposed to leave their home except for essential purposes. But there's a lot of essential purposes that do this if you have work obligations, if you need necessities from the grocery store, etc. And there's actually a lot of stuff that you're allowed to do. But a lot of people are actually kind of abiding with it besides going out for these essentials, at least what I've seen around the city. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I know certain institutions are, are deemed critical infrastructure and certain are not. Uh, I actually have up here the uh, uh, cyber and infrastructure website, uh, CISA.gov, and it, it lists out some of the critical infrastructures, things like uh, critical manufacturing, food and agriculture, healthcare and public health. Uh, things like that are, are still going to remain open, at least for the time being, because those are uh, just critical for the uh, normal day-to-day life to uh, to proceed as normally as possible. Yeah, and, and even in Fresno, a lot of stuff is still still open. Takeout restaurant. My brother is still uh, actually going out to work. He's at more than pizza at Clovis, and Clovis is actually kind of different because it's Fresno and Clovis are separate, but they fall under Fresno County. But Clovis hasn't actually announced a lot of things, but it all kind of falls under Fresno County, I would assume. I know Lee Brand, the mayor of Fresno, came out and had a shelter call this week. And I know Fresno Pacific, the university that me and Chan go to, we've um, had different measures taken. They closed the gyms as well as we've seen in the state um, and some other measures along with that. And a lot of people actually been moving off campus to move back home as it looks like we're not going to be returning back to school, it looks like, this year. Right, that's correct, and uh, right up here we have some stats from as of Wednesday night in California. This is really some of the main reason why there's been such an effort in California. Uh, The state has had 675 positive confirmations of COVID-19 and 16 deaths as of uh, Wednesday night. So, uh, and and that's 
but in terms of positive confirmations, that's likely a, a very large uh, under-reporting uh, under of that because obviously there's not enough testing available to, uh, to test on a wide scale. So, yeah, it's very likely that there's well over a thousand cases in California. And so exercising these uh, somewhat extreme quarantine measures and uh, the shelter-in-place orders are uh, intended to, uh, as the the New York Times has made kind of uh, widely available and it's been discussed in numerous government things, trying to flatten the curve and uh, lower the number of cases in uh, this sort of initial spike to give hospitals more time to uh, deal with the virus. Yeah, exactly. And I know Gavin Newsom had a lot of fears about the homeless population, knowing that we have 120,000 plus homeless people here in California and about half could be already infected as it is. And I know there's a lot other things besides the coronavirus that are going down, especially in Los Angeles, San Diego area, such as like stuff that we saw, like third world diseases, like the plague that have reemerged, like smallpox and different things that are that are happening just because of the homeless problem that we have here in California. Right. And yeah, certainly like we that's sort of been an issue that we've talked about on the show numerous times. And this is one of the very serious uh, consequences uh, of the homeless problem in California and, and in our country at large, of course. Uh, but yeah, there, there's certain measures that have been enacted. I don't know if you want to jump uh, to that yet or not, but certain measures that have been enacted to help curve uh, the problems of the coronavirus with uh, the homeless population in California. Yeah, I know the state released $100 million for local governments to have emergency shelter housing, and we're looking at ways to help make sure that this problem doesn't get any worse and that the coronavirus doesn't spread because it's going to be easily spread just because a lot of these populations are together. And we're looking at different issues along with with the money that the government's actually sending out. I know we'll talk with Robert later on in the show about um, about the stimulus checks that the government's going to be sending out. I think it's going to be about $1,200 as of right now. Um, we don't know exactly how, how that's going to work with unemployment and different things like that. But I, I just think when we get back to the homeless, homeless issue is how can we house temporarily a lot of these homeless people and help stop the spread of the coronavirus before it gets too high, especially in California with so many people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the uh, the concern, and yeah, looking forward to getting into that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how the interest rates have dropped, and housing is cheaper in California, but the long term effects of that economically are not going to be good because it make housing more more costly in California, and California already is an expensive state to live in, as we've seen many people have left over the past five years. Right, and and I think. There's certainly room for government intervention in a crisis like this, uh, but paying attention to the long-term ramifications of any sort of action, I think, is really important. And uh, yeah, it's really hard to say how this will impact long long term, but yeah, it it won't help uh, seemingly with the um, very high rent and decreasing home ownership in uh, California. Yeah, and it's going to be a continuing problem as long as we still have um, sky-high taxes and different things that are in California that are causing people to leave. And I think there's a lot more underlying issues in the way we do politics here in California, especially in Sacramento, these lifelong politicians that are comfortable in their positions and and just causing a lot of damage to taxpayers. And people are kind of tired, as we just saw in this last primary. And what we'll see in November, hopefully, is pretty much people refuting um, taxes here in California because people, I think, are tired of it. Yeah, there certainly will be a, a move towards that. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and then I know there's been some talks of martial law. What are your thoughts, Chan? Should martial law be enacted? I know I was talking to my buddy Sean yesterday about this, and he's like, hey, he's all, it might be enacted. There's a chance. Yeah, it, it certainly is a possibility. That would be certainly the last uh, resort I would hope for. I would... You know, nobody likes to see the government take over in that uh, large of a scale in terms of uh, having a martial law imposed over California. Um, I know that Newsom has said that there are some National Guard, uh, or the National Guard is being deployed in California to help with some 
uh, volunteer and food distribution work. Uh, so there's already the manpower in place. Uh, but he said that that's the, the sole purpose, at least as of uh, this point. Uh, but yeah, we have up here an uh, article from the uh, U.S. News and World Report about uh, how the virus is uh, unlikely to prompt martial law in California, but noting that it, it is still a possibility. And I was mentioning before we got on air that if there were things like uh, mass uh, break-ins to businesses and other sort of mob behavior uh, by people who are, are recognizing that normal society is shut down, that that would likely uh, be the, the necessary impetus to uh, declare martial law so let's, let's hope and pray that that doesn't happen yeah some examples of that especially with like california berkeley and the protests that have occurred there and having to enact martial law i know ronald reagan did that in 1969 and we see it anytime that right. people are out of line and at this point it's been really good a lot of social pressures help with that i think as long as people keep abiding and I, I, th I don't think we'll be able to stay in quarantine forever. I don't think people people want to be in quarantine for three or four months. So hopefully this alleviates. But having, I don't think we'll have to get to martial law, but unless people start going out and looting and, and like not listening to the authorities. Right. Yeah. I, you know, you never know how people are going to react to this. And certainly, like you said, that'd be the least desirable outcome. I do know you, you mentioned on, on sort of like the indefinite timeline of all of this. I was listening to Ben Shapiro's podcast yesterday, and he was talking about how um, you could sort of equate this to a diet. If you were like told to go on a diet where you had to cut out all the foods that you really enjoy for an indefinite period of time, you would last a very short amount of time. Um, but when you have like a, a clear end date that isn't too far in the future, it's much easier to stick to the diet. Um, and I was thinking when I was listening to Gover Governor Newsom announce the shelter-in-place orders, and when he said that it was uh, in until further notice, I was uh, sort of disappointed that he didn't set some sort of end date, uh, because I think that would help people be more likely to stick to uh, the, the orders. I think when you, you make it indefinite, it makes it a little bit more challenging to uh, stay in line with uh, what has been requested. Yeah, and, if, and as if you've seen in Florida, Florida, there's a lot of people there for spring break, and people aren't listening. I know the governor doesn't want to close beaches, but a lot of people are there partying and having a good time and not really listening to orders, which is the complete opposite of what we've seen here in California. Right, yeah, and that's very disappointing, and, and certainly it, like, that ruins it for the rest of us who are having to change our lifestyle and uh, really sacrificed a lot of things in order to uh, lower the spread of the coronavirus and it's pretty uh, frustrating to see that yeah and i know um the the death count in florida i think has hit 10 and now there's 500 cases statewide and a lot of people aren't taking it serious so it's interesting to see the like state to state how it changes and the rules that need to be enacted to make sure that the spread doesn't go further than the state's borders Absolutely, yeah. So I just think it's I think uh, it's interesting. So, all right, let's no, move, for sure. Yeah, let's move on to um, China. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I think today we just got to go after it. The gloves got to come off today with this whole thing going on about all this news that's been spread that the United States is to blame for this. This is Chinese propaganda. Iran has joined in as well. And I think today we pretty much got to get after it just because a lot of people don't understand that this is just a lot of, as Donald Trump likes to say, fake news. I don't see this like this is just their government. I think they are to blame. 100%. Uh, I was listening to a press, uh, press meeting and there's a reporter who is calling him out on calling uh, the virus the Chinese virus. And he made the point that there were, uh, or China was blaming the virus on U.S. military. And he said, as long as China's, if China thinks that they can do that, they have another thing coming uh, because it's clearly the consequence of their corruption and their cover-up. Uh, you have a source here that shows a, a timeline of the uh, of China's response to the um, 
the coronavirus in its early days from Axios. Uh, the, the author of that article is uh, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. And uh, basically, it went quite a, a period of time before China even announced that there was an issue. Um, they covered up that the virus could be spread from person to person. And uh, yeah, it, if China would have dealt with this issue better in its early stages, if they would have executed some sort of order in relation to the markets with exotic animals like uh, snakes and bats and penguins, uh, I, we wouldn't have this issue on a global stage right now. It would uh, either not have happened or it would have been limited to a, a small region in China. And uh, it's absolutely time for the gloves to come off and for there to be uh, global ramifications on uh, China and its uh, oppressive government yeah exactly and and just looking back it's like the fact that it was the in january this thing could have been totally avoided i know we talked about this on our first episode that we aired so it's it's crazy to look at it's crazy to look at um and that chinese the chinese government i know trump there needs to be good good relations with um, China as well because of trade implications and I know we have the trade deals that was worked out late last year and it's still being worked on right now and he came out this morning and a lot of respect for China and pretty much the negotiations that we've had with them but also they can't keep spewing propaganda out here saying that the United States caused this this crisis and pretty much there's a lot more other countries out there that are suffering with the impacts of this this whole thing especially Italy uh, Germany is now experiencing different things, the UK, um, and it's just, it just varies per country. Right. Yeah. And yeah, the, the need to hold China accountable in this whole situation, I think, I think Trump will get it right. That tends to be something that he does well. Uh, not always, but, but certainly more often than not, it, I think when this situation starts to die down, uh, we will see a, China will, will either have to, um, you know, make some sort of amends for this, or um, they'll pay a, a consequence on the global stage in terms of economic sanctions and um, other problems and, until they become uh, a little bit more of a uh, of a free government. Yeah, and exactly. And China is not a country that people like to keep accountable. And this is the same country that harvests people's organs and murders murders prisoners and other people within the state that are sick and then uses them. And it's crazy how the turnout rate for a, an organ transplant in China compared to the U.S. is crazy. Two weeks, you can get a kidney in China. But in the United States, you got to wait months and months, possibly up to a year to get that transplant. And they are, and this is just a lot of the ugly truth about China and the, the way that they can cover up stuff. And they've been called down on it before, but then they falsify information. So the same thing that we're seeing with the coronavirus, we see it with the way that they're they're doing with the with the organs. This is stuff that gets covered up, and China is not ever held accountable. That's correct. Yeah, uh, President Xi Jinping of, of China has definitely done a lot to cover up the coronavirus and, and this whole process. They're covering up uh, things like the, the organ harvesting. I, I know you were referring to an article by the New York Post uh, written in uh, 2019 uh, about the organ harvesting that's going on in China. And that, yeah, it's, there's a lot of things, a lot of human rights violations that are going on in China that the West is turning a blind eye to, and it, it's having global ramifications. Exactly. And then Iran comes out, and now they're trying to blame U.S. and Israel for Corona give me a break so now they're trying to spin a whole different thing that this was a biological weapon planned by the united states and israel to um pretty much get rid of the islamic revolutionary guard corps and destroy iran yeah and of course we know that again like the the chinese government the iranian government is corrupt and uh is there's very little sense of, of democracy there uh, and so when, yeah, they're, they're pushing lies like that on their citizens just to uh, make America and Israel look bad and, and to justify their actions on a global stage, it's, um, it's sad to see. And again, there should be some accountability held, uh, held on them for uh, spewing that propaganda.
Yeah, and Iran's seen a very large amount of deaths in the country, and they've actually had, if you haven't heard and, and been on social media, I know a lot of people were talking about them building burial pits for people that have died. It's it's just because there's so many cases. There. There's been over 10,000 cases confirmed there, over 500 deaths by now, um, according to CNN. This was earlier this week, and there's, there's just pictures of overhead satellite images of but the pits being buried for these people that are dying and the government is trying their best to cover this up but they've been hit extremely hard in this situation right and and you know that's very tragic and like certainly when we call for um, some sort of accountability it's not against like the chinese people or the iranian people those are the ones suffering under these oppressive governments it's certainly against the governments uh, who are are doing these things so let's move on. Let's hit on to our next next topic. Um, I don't know. Did you have any closing thoughts on that, Chan, at all? Um, no, not really. I think uh, just the, the need for the uh, global accountability as we are increasingly a, uh, uh, a unified world in terms of uh, communication and the, the influences of trade and... Uh, you know, there's just more and more globalization, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And if we're going to uh, if we're going to practice that and then turn a blind eye to these oppressive governments, uh, we're going to see more and more bad consequences of that. I think a, a good thing is, as we like to say, defenders of the truth here on this show um, about the Democrats and the media also being part of the Chinese like propaganda machine. And the way they're trying to destroy Donald Trump in every which way, as Donald Trump is trying his best to navigate this crisis. Yeah, they're in a in a sense they're acting as puppets for the Chinese government and for uh, President Xi Jinping. And it's uh, it's sad to see, but of course we've been seeing how the the media and the Democrats have been acting, and um, it's not surprising to see that in this time that. They'll politicize any issue and they'll use uh, even something that should be as unifying as a uh, enemy as the coronavirus um, in order to push their political agenda. And, you know, I, I've certainly been trying to avoid doing that myself. Uh, there's obviously political ramifications here, but um, it, in terms of how much they're politicizing this and making this uh about how Trump is a, a bad person, he handled this poorly, he's a racist, and, and things that, you know, if, if you would have predicted that this would happen, you certainly could have predicted the, uh, the media's response and the Democrats' response in terms of how they would criticize Trump. Yeah, and even Nancy Pelosi trying to slide abortion measures into the bill that was supposed to help aid the coronavirus relief. Yeah, that's just a theme. It is just any which way they can get agenda passed while politicizing this whole issue since the beginning, the news, and just the way every each and every day in the pressers we see it, the news, these are things that are live, C-SPAN, CNN, NBC, every news station's covering it, and you can see how vicious the media is going after Trump every every time he's... Yeah, and it's, it's without fail, and even, like I said, when there's something that should be unifying, like a, a pandemic that we need to address as a, a whole country and as a whole world, um, yeah, there's just that increasing division that they're trying to push, and yeah, I hate to see it. So I've heard some good news for taxpayers out there. You want to tell us some more? Yeah, so this is an interesting consequence of all the, the coronavirus news. Um, and this is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the U.S. extends individual tax filing deadline from April 15th to July 15th. So um, if you weren't doing a good job of uh, being on top of filing your taxes, you now have until July 15th to do that. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty nice. Little, uh, little grace in there. And, of course, because a lot of the offices that are um, related to uh, the you know, handling taxes are going to be uh, closed due to uh, the coronavirus, I would assume. Yep, so that's good to hear that they're extending some some more measures on that. But let's head on to our next thing. We want to talk about some insider trading that's been going on, some senators that have been caught recently for selling off millions of dollars of stocks right before the big crash. 
Yeah, uh, you have here on our notes that um, Republican North Carolina Senator Richard Burr and Republican Georgia Senator uh, Kelly Loeffler sold the combined uh, two to four million dollars in stock after attending private briefings about the coronavirus pandemic, even as they publicly amplified the Trump administration line that the virus did not pose a major threat to public health or the economy. Uh, and so obviously, this is a bad thing. This is a bad move. Um, any sort of insider tra- trading where uh, either on, in the business sector or in uh, the government, if there's insider knowledge and then you act on that knowledge uh, for your own profit, that's uh, obviously not only immoral, it's illegal. And uh, hopefully there will be consequences for this for those senators. Yeah, and then Diane Feinstein and Jim Inhofe this morning have selling as much as six point four million dollars in stock. So more more people are being shown to have have uh, committed insider trading, and this is just not good look for Congress. So they we always talk about draining the swamp here in the U.S. and Trump. That's a key key line you always hear him say. And these are people that are exactly part of this whole thing. In two thousand twelve. Um, under President Barack Obama, the Stock Act was passed pretty much not allowing members of Congress to use and and um, congressional employees from using um, non-public information so that they could further further their wealth and pretty much collect profit. And and um, the full name of it, Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act of 2012. And it's interesting to look as it was passed 417 to 2 in the House, and then in the Senate, 96 to 3. And then one of the three in the Senate happening to be Richard Burr. <laughs> so I think the irony uh, of that is pretty hard, funny. Yeah, it's hard to miss. Uh, and yeah, hopefully there will be some accountability. I don't know what the Stock Act has in terms of, uh, of consequences for uh, um, violating its terms. But yeah, like I said, hopefully... And this is people on both sides of the aisle, too. Like you said, it, uh, it was Senators Diane Feinstein and Jim Inhofe, as well as uh, the Republican senators who I mentioned. Uh, and, yeah, on either side of the aisle, we're not going to uh, play favorites here. Like, uh, there needs to be uh, the consequences there. Exactly. So we've been keeping Robert on the line for the last half an hour. He's ready to roll. So this man is from Emanuel College in Boston. He's studying economics and international affairs with a concentration in diplomacy and security. And he has minors in Italian finance and is also a tutor at the university. Um, Robert, are you there? Yes, Matt. I'm here. How are you guys? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Uh, honor. Big fan of the show here. It's great to uh, meet you at the Harvard conference and get in touch with you that way. Yeah, I know it's um, crazy. It feels so long ago since we last um, saw each other, especially that that weekend went so quick, and then the coronavirus outbreak, and pretty much everybody's been quarantined since then. And I'd just like to hear some of your thoughts on how quarantine's going for you, and how it is in Boston, and how it's affected travels and college and everything. So um, my university, Emanuel College, has switched to online classes for the rest of the semester. So. It's- it's a little bit unfortunate because um, I was going to present some uh, distinction projects that I was involved in, um, and and I'd say one of them, actually both of them, are quite relevant to this whole black swan event we're seeing as coronavirus. So maybe I'll talk about that too. Um, and I was also working on a publication with the with um, some friends at the school, and um, we were using some of the school's programs. So it's kind of bad that um, we're not able to do that so we're going to meet next weekend online and try to figure it out that way Um, but yeah so being home there's no gym so I can't go out to work out or anything Um, yeah that's that's what's going on with the coronavirus here yeah I know it's too bad to hear that I know a lot of Zoom has been a big thing that college students have been starting to use and especially with some of the lectures and stuff and it's, it's a big change and especially since you had all this stuff ready to roll and pretty much now it has to be put off to online and, and all the social distancing that we have to do now. So, all right. Now, we guess we're just, that was some good stuff to hear about um, Boston. Has there anything like, um, that, that's occurred right now that, that's changed for you the most? Um, so, you know, there, I think there's some rumors going around from what I hear that they're going to um, be quarantining Massachusetts like they did out in California. 
um, that has happened. They just canceled a lot of different um, different businesses here that we can't go to. But um, ever since uh, um, uh, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, right, that's his name, from mm-hmm. the, uh, the WHO Director General, since he declared a, a pandemic, I think that kind of um, matriculated itself into a greater scare, scared um, for everyone out there. So, you know, my main concern is consumer confidence, right? Um, I study economics. One of the things I study is economics, as you said. And I know uh, Brad McMillan, the uh, chief investment officer at the Commonwealth uh, Financial Network, he said consumer confidence is the most important thing here. When we're thinking about how coronavirus is going to affect the economy, um, really it just comes down to how people are going to react to the market. Uh, One of the papers that I'm writing, one of the research papers I'm writing right now is uh, it it assesses how uh, these black swan events, and specifically my paper was talking about wars and terrorism, but now I'm going to be talking about, I'll have to add in more stuff about coronavirus. Um, So there is, I have to work in how coronavirus affects the market. And analyzing that, you find that coronavirus is a significant black swan event because according to Caldara and uh, research about a GPR index, it's a geopolitical um, significance index of how much it has come up in the news. That creates more volatility in the market because more people are paying attention to this pandemic now. That it really frightens people and that can really a big cause and how long the duration of that volatility is represented in the market. So all in all, we're going to see a much longer period. Initially, if it isn't 15 to 20 days of insignificant market volatility, such as, um, such as, for example, here in Boston, we saw uh, a local economy downgrade after the Boston Marathon attack in 2013 of April. And that volatility lasted 15 to 20 days just because that was something that was a, a local localized attack and had a significant CPR index. But that significance was much lower than something like 9-11, for instance, or the Iraq war. So in terms of figuring out where this coronavirus fits into that whole situation, uh, we're seeing coronavirus have a higher GPR index, meaning that it's going to be a little bit longer having its effects on the economy. And if you think about it, the coronavirus started just started one day here rather simultaneously. I mean, uh, not simultaneously, but suddenly, mm-hmm. right? Um, China has all the manufacturing, and China was lost a lot, a big part of the manufacturing. People are worried about Amazon having in their bubble wrapping um, air from China and coronavirus. That's that's all consumer confidence. Uh, and, and then this is also another problem with uh, this whole globalization that a lot of people in politics want is that this whole idea of um, comparative advantage in trade where you have one country um, like the United States trading with another country in the Western Hemisphere. Now that supply uh, network if that is interrupted, that can have a rippling effect throughout the other economies. And we've seen that as a pure example coronavirus in China. So China, their manufacturing goes down. Okay, so that now leads to a lot of other economic issues for countries around the world, such as in the United States and Europe. Um, and that's led to price gouging, right? And and a lack of resources and hurt lack of math for that matter. I know someone that works at the local hospital here in Boston who has a multitude of coronaviruses on their floor and that they are making these uh, healthcare officials wear masks for a week, where in fact you're supposed to wear a mask one time use and throw it away because you can't clean it, the germs are on it. Um, so it, it's been a relatively... Um, issue at a at a microcosmic scale here at home as well as i think emphasizes some bigger global issues 
with uh, globalization. Um, if, if you want to get that deep into it, Matt and Chang. We really appreciate uh, your insights on this, uh, and, and it's pretty appropriate that you were uh, already doing some research uh, on the, the effects of the, the Black Swan event uh, on the economy. So one thing we we're kind of wondering, uh, actually, and you may have uh, some good opinions on this, for, uh, for somebody who maybe is involved in the stock market, uh, like even if it's sort of recreationally, is this a good time to uh, to invest and to buy stocks now that they're uh, you know everything is falling, the market is, is so low right now. Is this a good time to buy? Because foreseeably this uh, the markets will increase and the economy will recover from this. <laughs> so that's the million dollar question, right? Um, so and it, it's much more nuanced than um, than you would expect, right? So um, looking at the GPR index, right, and, and trying to figure out where coronavirus fits on that. So you're trying to figure out how long this panic is going to last. Now, when I, I had um, gone to Italy in Milan to do my research, part of my research there, and it makes sense why there are so many, um, specifically in Milan, why there are so many uh, coronavirus cases there, just because of how much Milan is a hub, international hub, right? So, so when you're looking at if you should invest in the stock market, yes, eventually the stock market is going to be a big upswing. In terms of how and when, how many days, I would say right now you're going to see a big upswing in healthcare industries and online industries. So you know, online shopping or, or whatever that is. You know, you got to think of where their production is coming from as well. Like Amazon's production is coming from China. Well, is China doing well right now? Yes, they're doing much better than they were. So a lot of people are cooped up at home and they're getting used to living a recluse life online. And that's going to somehow get matriculated into our livelihood afterwards that we have these better online capabilities we know how to go completely virtual so you'll see an upswing in the tech industry now with the tech industry a lot of conferences were canceled and a lot of revenue was lost but people are at home utilizing these things right now um in terms of everything else okay tesla that was a big one a couple weeks ago where they upswing like 200 points in one day um I would say you want to invest now because maybe not today, right? But in the shorter time thereafter, this is going to last for a few months, maybe even cause a recession. It's all about consumer confidence. So it's something that you've got to keep watching. Is it, how much is it contained around the world? Um, and, and you see, I definitely will be getting into the market soon. Not right now. I'm holding to see how much uh, the rest of the world is going to react to this. But as you can see at various stocks, prices are significantly lower than they were. So whenever there is a recession, whenever there is some sort of um, market decline, that's when people our age, 20-year-old, right, or, you know, just graduated college or whatever, that's when those that demographic can become rich money transfers around so back in the 2008 financial crisis there was like i think a drop of 56 percent in the economy now we're seeing a drop of about 20 percent so we're almost that level and and recessions are supposed to get less less um have less of an impact than they did back in the great depression over time you know we're supposed to be getting better at that so so we might be at the peak of it now. So I would, you know, definitely now is the time to invest somewhere within the near future. As as my uh, research has proven, I'm creating an, an equation uh, with um, dummy variables, right? Dummy variables are variables to determine how long um, a period lasts. And then I have inflation, employment, un unemployment rate in there, um, CPI, a bunch of other factors into this equation. To kind of determine how long a black swan event such as 9-11 or coronavirus 
or Iraq war, um, some, something of that significance, how long that event will have an effect on the finance market. And then that can also be applied specifically to certain, um, you know, whatever it is, like in the case of Iraq war, 9-11 defense industry stocks, or in this case, maybe um, health stocks, or you can apply it to any other um, stock that you want. So that, that was kind of a, a long, drawn-out answer for you, but uh, I, think, I think that, you know, if you look at it as a whole and take into all these nuanced factors into consideration, um, and it, once I complete this equation, which is probably going to be a little bit a while from now because I'm in the middle of the work for it, uh, you'll be able to hopefully better see, better predict that in some way. Um, yeah. So I know you mentioned price gouging and how that has had a large effect, especially during this this crisis and people selling $60 bottles of hand sanitizer, $10, $100 for toilet paper. What are your thoughts on price gouging in this time of crisis? Yeah, so I've seen that too. I think uh, price gouging was up 817% from like February 29th to March 6th area. Um, and I know... Many, the government tries to regulate this, right? But many economists question the value of anti-price gouging statutes that, because they argue that without escalating prices, consumer will hoard goods. Higher prices, however painfully in the short term, can also lead suppliers to produce more of a good, which eventually pushes prices back down. Mm-hmm. So... So what do governments do? They institute a price ceiling, which is a it's it's a price control. Governments use price controls to protect consumers from conditions that could make commodities commodities such as Purell um, prohibitively expensive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so normal rises in prices discourages people from buying more than they need and it encourages supplies to deliver more product um, those are both very necessary functions even during market emergencies or, or pandemics for that matter i know um the, so so you have that hoarding factor that can occur but you can also have um, industries increase their production and then that would then lower costs. I know the Purell and sanitizing um, companies, they have increased the amount of overtime hours that they're offering and that they have increased, um, just try to increase their production to help to gain more money for themselves, but also lower those costs. Uh, Price gouging is one of those things that's incredibly hard to reinforce. I know um, New York City, police have had their investigators looking for price gouging by um, pretending to be customers going into stores and they also the commissioner also went out and did the same investigation because there's just not enough people to investigate price gouging because if you think of supply and demand on a graph and demand increases but supply stays the same your equilibrium price will be inevitably higher. So it, it comes down to a question of, do you believe in free market, a pure free market laissez-faire, or do you believe in government intervention, some sort of regulation, right? There's a moral side of it where you think, okay, everyone should get it, but then there's an economic side of it. And if people are hoarding Purell, then is everyone really going to be able to obtain their own Purell? So, so going back to the um, the New York City investigation and the commission also looking into price gouging, if this was a scenario such that of an apocalypse, like if you've ever seen The Walking Dead or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, even, um, even if it was Ebola, where if you get Ebola, 50% of the people that get it die from it. This is not that. This is why it doesn't need to be... Uh, entire market panic in this but if it were something like ebola or some sort of zombie apocalypse for that matter um there would be no adequate way to ensure price gouging the fact that the new york 
city commissioner herself went to go investigate price gouging in the stores um, means that there just would not be enough people to actually reinforce it. Because the only way you can reinforce it is by getting in the store, getting proof, um, seeing the price. And then there also comes down to an unjust. You have to verify, like you have to prove that that why that price increased. And if you can't prove it, then that's price gouging. Yeah, now no, in San Diego. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, even in San Diego, they did some undercover price gouging investigation down there, and they arrested eight people that were they were uh, upcharging there in San Diego. So across the country, I know there's been investigations, but I totally agree that you it's hard to go and police this when it can happen literally anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Even in uh, Massachusetts, we don't really have a price gouging law here. Um, what it actually is, it's... Um, we enacted a different kind of law. It's uh, about it's about um, competitive advantage, having a deceptive competitive advantage over competitors. So we use that law to kind of um, circumvent the tensions that would arise from price gouging. Right? Um, and and I know North Carolina also has a, a price gouging law, um, which says that any under any under any circumstances. Um, price gouging is not allowed. So that circumstances part, that can be widely um, manipulated, right? You can see where a law can have its uh, implicit or uh, unexplicit definition. And here in Massachusetts, we're using a mellow law because the price gouging law only references um, for oil. Um, and, and I know uh, Amazon also had some issues with that, but um, it looks like they've been able to fully investigate that because it's not happening on a widely scale. So I'm kind of curious what you guys think. Do you think do you think that you should have a free market for um, allowing price gouging so that the market will self-correct itself, or do you think that there should be some sort of moral regulation uh, imparted by the government as as it is right now? Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at this, and, and then maybe Matt can uh, can chime in too. So. Quick background, uh, I don't know how much you've listened to me, but I, I'm fairly libertarian, uh, and and I tend to agree with, with some of what you're pointing out early about how, um, and, and I, I've only taken like a, a basic microeconomics course, so you're, you're probably much more versed in this than I am, but um, as uh, demand goes up for a product, price the, the equilibrium price will increase, but usually it from what I understand, uh, supply will also increase and the, the equilibrium price will drop it back down roughly to what it originally was. Uh, and and I tend to find that the market uh, will, will set the, the best price, or I tend to at least appreciate the, the price that the market will set for it uh, if it's unobstructed. The only, uh, the only difference to that in uh, this case is there are a lot of externalities related to um, if you were to have price gouging with something more serious, like you said, like say Ebola, um, then then you get into the issue where there's people who won't be able to have access to um, to these goods or services that are um, increasing unreasonably, and and I think then there there's a good case to be made for some um, some regulation in that case, but only in a time of crisis. Uh, I don't have like a, a hard line that I, I've drawn on this, but I, I would say that it would have to be pretty extreme uh, in order for me to feel comfortable with increased regulation uh, regarding price gouging. Yeah, so so that you made a good point there too. Um, so with price gouging and the whole supply and demand curve, um, so the issue here is that it's a lagging effect, that supply is staying relatively uh, the same just because, in fact, it might have even shortened for masks, for example, because the production's not there because China's, you know, um, under quarantine themselves and everything. But the, the issue, I tutor three economics classes, too, um, and, and the issue is that um, supply is lagging, that it's not shifting too quick. So you, you have these longer periods of price gouging. And that's where the question comes into play. Do, 
let that happen or do you try to self-correct that longer period? If it were a period like Ebola, it is likely that that lagging effect will even be longer because these factories or these people won't be able to work because they're getting it or their their factories or whatever um, under quarantine. Yeah, so that's that's one thing there. And then in addition yeah, to price gouging, yeah. um, at least on my on my uh, opinion on it, and I'm kind of in the same kind of boat as Chandler on this one. I know we agree on a lot of stuff. This is one of those things where it's it's kind of tough, and especially I'm Catholic, and that kind of goes into my perspective as well. Is we need to help others, but also we need to let the market decide the prices and and price gouging. In the perfect scenario, pretty much is you're going to have things that come into the market say like a radiator comes in somebody selling it for $1,300 if it sells for $900 I've seen this example used before and in you can go and either buy that at that price or let other competitors come in which will drive prices down simplifying that's just basic economics you're going to bring in competition it's going to drop prices and price gouging is usually frowned upon but it's hard to regulate but also you need you need people to come in to drive those prices down so I it's hard for me to like okay I think I think there needs to be some but I don't. I'm not a big fan of increased regulations on business. I'm a free market guy, and I've always have been. And I, that's my thought on that. And you know, I think um, I have a relatively extensive background in dealing with uh, economic-related ventures too that might provide some extra credibility, despite my age. Because I think a lot of times people say, "Oh, you're only uh, 22 years old." You, what do you know? But I've done quite a bit of things, too. Uh, I don't know how public that information is. Yeah, I know you. Uh, we had that article Emanuel College put out. If anybody wants to go check it out, emanuel.edu, um, Robert Columbus, the idea man. Pretty much about the different things that you've done. Big um, working for an NGO, um, having your first internship at the Massachusetts State House and just coming up with different ideas and ways that we can improve different things. I know there, there talks about a bike path that you uh, you helped bring to Boston. Um, did you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, sure, if you want me to. Yeah, um, we can kind of jump to that. I just thought that would be a good transition point. I know you were just talking about the different things that you've done, and I don't know if there's anything that sticks out to you in particular that you maybe wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, I can, I can just uh, briefly go over myself a little bit um so so back um way back when i was under age to vote i there was this debate in my town to institute a bike trail and i love biking as uh, as chandler knows i was telling him about it and um and there was this big debate because businesses there's that eminent domain law that the the, the train line left the town and they left the uh, the land that the train was on to recreational purposes but that never went into recreational purposes and businesses put their pro- property stuff on that so there was eminent domain laws coming into um not eminent domain but um you know having land for more than five years becomes yours so i ended up starting this petition because i was told no that i couldn't have any help in it and i got um tons of uh, signatures from people my own age as well as I reached out to the local news newspaper and uh, we got so much lionizing support for it because of my petition that it ended up passing um, and and that kind of helped jump start my um, career I was at the my internship at the Massachusetts State House where I started out in mental health and substance abuse but then I, I kind of figured out that I'm more inclined in life um, economic policy making and research so that's where I helped them out um, from there uh, I worked at Fidelity Investments where I was um, part of an advisory offering design team where with senior um, employees about trying to figure out ways to um, inc- double the revenue of the workplace investment within two years um, so I helped create this finance, multi-year financial plan, uh, developed competitive insights and a bunch of other things that I got to meet um, the executive vice president over there and um, uh, other wow. notable people. Um, then after that, I went over to the United States Department of Commerce and I worked on aerospace and uh, 
global defense endeavors and other companies and I've met CEOs and uh, people from around the world and I helped implement a specific company because of um, client privilege um, disclosure confidentiality I'm not going to say their name but I helped them get into um, a specific market in Europe uh, helping them navigate the uh, laws over there in Europe and gave them my economic market entry advice um, I also uh, went to Italy to conduct research in Italian, um, so that's where I really fostered my Italian language skills. Um, and and at the same time, I've been a bike tour guide in Boston. So if you guys ever want to come down to Boston, I'll give you a free bike tour. Oh yeah, I know you kind of did and that I the last time we were there too. Ah yeah, we, yeah, we got to do that. I mentioned that. Yeah, I like to mention that to people. I want to give bike tours for fun, no cost. You just come over, text me. I'll give you a bike to it. <laughs> awesome. I'd love to take you up on that. I need. I haven't been to the East Coast yet. I, I really need to see a lot of uh, a lot of Boston, and uh, I'd like to visit Washington D.C. as well. Oh yeah, it, yeah. Everyone goes to D.C. and not always Boston. D.C. is the capital. I guess that's more of a must. So you can do the. You know, I know for Californians, it's, um, you have from Las Vegas to San Diego, it's like three, four hours or whatever. Here in Boston, you can go from Boston to a completely different state and different city of New York and then D.C. all within a four-hour span of each other, right? So, so uh, D.C. is only nine hours away from us. New York's only four hours away from us. And Rhode Island's only 45 minutes if you ever want to go to Providence. <laughs> So awesome. I know we're running a little bit low on time. Um, this is the longest episode of the Matt and Chan show we've had so far, but it's been awesome having you on Robert. Okay, good. Uh, thank you for having me. It was fantastic to get to know you guys and, and meet you Matt at the Harvard conference and um, also just be here on the show. I hope, I hope I've provided some good insight. Yeah, you have. And I don't know if you yeah. have anything for our listeners out there. Any, any last closing thoughts? Um, one last quick thought. I heard you guys were talking about the accountability on coronavirus. And, and um, this, is, this is not too well known. Um, and I don't know if you'll want to um, delete this part out of your segment here. But um, th- so I know some, I've also had some job opportunities in some organizations. And I know someone that works on intelligence. I know a few people that work on intelligence, but this one guy in particular said that the um, medical research facility of China, military, it, it created the coronavirus. Um, so that that that, and then also in Boston, they arrested a Harvard uh, chemistry, uh, the ch- the chairman of the chemistry department. He does like nanotechnologies or whatever. His name is Charles Lieber. You can look him up. Um, and he was arrested for conspiracy with China, and it doesn't go into too much detail about what he was doing, and they also arrested 50 other alleged students around Boston that were um, also from China. They were actually Chinese um, officials, like uh, lieutenants and stuff in the military over there. So this coronavirus that originated from Wuhan, and Charles Lieber was working in Wuhan, China, um, under the radar from the Defense Department here in the United States. Um, I'm not sure to what extent his involvement is in this, but you, you put pieces together and based on the guy knowing himself, that that China made the coronavirus. Yeah, no, I heard, so, I heard different things about this too. Um, different. I know it's people are like, oh, it's a conspiracy, but I wouldn't put it past China. I know a lot about like it being a biological weapon and this and we haven't seen a lot of things like used in this way yet and i think this could be possibly one of the things and i think probably may, one of the main things that china was in the cover-up didn't want too much information to go out there and it was interesting i didn't hear about this harvard professor at all but i think that's an interesting point and yeah i know robert we're gonna have to have you on again to maybe discuss maybe after this is all over even soon discuss more on the economy and the impacts the coronavirus has had and yeah, it was great talking to you today. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back. And, uh, yeah, I'm definitely not a conspiracy theorist, that's for sure. So. Yep, only it, facts it here. Great. Thanks for coming on, Robert. Um, we'll catch you soon. Any any last uh, remarks, Chan? 
Uh, no, I really want to thank Robert for coming on the show. Um, it, was, it was great getting to talk with you, and, and I really appreciate your insight. I feel like you uh, you bring a perspective and some experience uh, to the show that uh, we didn't have. And, and yeah, I was very, uh, very grateful for uh, everything that you shared with us. Okay, thank you guys. Anytime. All right, Robert, we'll thank talk to you later. Me. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye, Robert. Bye. All right, so as you guys know, we are growing each and every week as one of the biggest conservative podcasts. Oh, we're not the Shapiro Show, sorry. But we are growing each and every week, our listenership. And it's just, and it's all done by listeners like you. So if you can just give a subscribe on YouTube, a five-star review would be great. Just leave what your thoughts are. If you want to be on the show, reach out to us at the Matt and Chan email at mattandchangmail.com. And if you want to come on, let us know. And we like to hear various perspectives. That's our goal and mission of this show, to be defenders of the truth and to get people's perspectives out there. Chan, any thoughts? Um, no, this has been, as always, a, a great episode. And a big shout-out to uh, to the listeners who uh, tuned in. Until next time, this is The Matt and Chan Show.